Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now this week's message. Okay. Well, good morning. Well, if you're just joining us, we're in Mark chapter 13, about a quarter of the way in, and we have a big task ahead of us dealing with the second coming and with the Olivet Discourse, uh, judgment, tribulation, all of those things. And they are very complicated and difficult. And I just want to say to you, uh, I have two things. One is... Uh, I tried in a staff meeting this week with our programming team to give this talk the way uh, the way I wanted to give it, and I got about 90 minutes in, and I was halfway done. Two fell asleep. So I can only give you one side of this. In a sermon, you'll hate if I gave you all the sides. So I can only give you my view. You're just going to have to live with that. The second thing I will tell you is, uh, when it comes to eschatology, they're complicated. You're going to hear terms. Some you've heard before, some you haven't. And what I've had to do over the, you know, the course of my life is get what you can and let the rest go for now. That's just what you have to do. I took an eschatology course. In 1990 with Craig Blazing, one of the smartest guys on this topic ever. In fact, one of the books I recommended to you, he's a writer in it. And he's now at Southwestern. He was at Dallas Seminary. And uh, I took a course with him, and uh, I can only remember one day of it. So that's what happens with eschatology. Some of it just goes over your head, and you pick a little today, and you get a little later, and you just get it until you die or until you're in it. So... That's how it works. So that's what's got to happen in this. We're trying to get through Mark. We want to know what Mark has to say to us about these things. So let's look at this verse right here. I think it starts right here. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Okay, so there's two things in this text that are important. One is we've got to understand what that means, because that's the key moment. And then the second thing we've got to understand is why are we running? I was thinking about this. You ever, you ever have a friend when you were a kid uh, who was a buddy of yours, maybe he was a little mischievous, and every once in a while he'd just go running by you and say, Run! And you're like, why, what? And you start slow, but then you really take off. And then when you get where you're going, you stop and you say, what did you do? And who was chasing us? That's kind of how I, that's kind of how you feel when you get here. What is that? What happened? Why am I running? Well, that's a good question. And a major shift occurs in the Olivet Discourse when this subject comes up, which is the abomination of desolation. And... The reason is, is because Jesus has just dropped us into a prophetic history and reality that we may not even know what he's talking about. 
But he has you in the middle of something you don't really thoroughly understand. And he has you running and you may not even know why. And so we've got to figure that out. So we could take a whole talk to do that. So I've got to do it really fast in order for us to get through Mark. So this is what I want to do. And it's even a little different than what I had originally planned. I changed it this morning. Uh, but, but it's important. So I'm going to do something that I wasn't planning to do. I'm just going to read something to you. And then I'm going to draw you a fast picture of it. Because you're not going to really thoroughly understand what's going on. But here's what's happening. When Jesus brings up the abomination of desolation here, when he brings this up, He is taking us to Daniel chapter 9. He's taking us to Daniel. There's three places he could be taking you. Primarily 27. 1131 is another one. And then 12. 1211. You'll see this abomination of desolation. So you got to be able to go to Daniel to understand what Jesus is talking about here. So let me read to you. What is being described? Daniel 9, 24 to 27. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people. Seventy weeks for Israel. For your people in the holy city. And six things are going to be accomplished. In that time period, not going to read those right now. You can read them. They're in verse 24. Daniel wants you to understand these 70 weeks. So you're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's 444 B.C. Until Messiah the Prince... There will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So there's going to be one week. By the way, just and for the sake of not spending time on it, the weeks represent seven years. So that means 70 weeks equals 490 years. So the first seven weeks, which is 49 years, the first 49 years are there. And then he says, after 62 more seven-year periods, the Messiah will be cut off. If you count the days from right here to right here, you go from March 5th, 444 B.C. to March 30th, A.D. 33. That's the moment Jesus rides, that's the day Jesus rides into the temple, rides into Jerusalem. Okay, based on a 360-day calendar in the lunar year of Israel. That's where you get to. So from the time Daniel makes this prediction, right here. And then he says, now watch. So he's, just, he's talking about their peace. This takes us all the way to Christ. He's describing Israel's history and their future. And then he says, it will be built again with a plaza and a moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. So at some point here, Jesus is going to die. And we know that it's only a few days. It's only within a week after he gets there that he dies. 
Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be wars and desolations. So he is describing if this is 69 weeks, there is one more week left. So you have a 7, a 62, and a 1. Does everybody see that? This is another 7-year period. 62, 49. You can see what's happening. By the time you get here, you're at 483 years. You get here, you're at 490 years when that week is finished. That last week. Okay? Now, here's what he says is going to happen in this last week. He will make a firm covenant. This is the prince he described. There's a prince coming, and this prince is going to make a firm covenant for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Abominations who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed and is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So what he is saying is, there is going to come a prince who at the beginning of this last week of Israel's history will make a covenant with Israel. Right here. There's a covenant. In the middle of that week, he's going to break that covenant. And he will do what is the abomination of desolation. Right here in the middle of it. Now we know, because of Revelation, that this seven-week period, this seven-year period, is divided into three and a half years each. With the centerpiece being this. That means when Jesus brings up the abomination of desolation in Mark 13, he has catapulted you not only back to Daniel, to what Daniel prophesied, but also future, to the future of when that week will be accomplished. So this is how you get a seven-year tribulation. You get that from Daniel chapter 9. If you already say, well, where's the seven-year tribulation come from? That's where it comes from. Some people believe this has already happened. And some people believe it's future. If you believe it's future, when you read Revelation, you see it all happening. Not all of it, because some of it happens within Revelation, and then they're predicting something beyond it. Okay? So... That's why it gets confusing, because some people think this has already happened in the future. I'm just telling you that I see it as something, or see that it's already happened in the past. I see it as something future, so that's the view I'm going to give you, and then we'll just have to go from there. All right, otherwise we'd be here all day long arguing it. All right, well, actually more than a day. You'll do it for the rest of your life, not just today. Okay, now let me tell you why this is significant. I don't know, do I have any more blank slides? Yeah, I do. All right, let me tell you... What is going on here? And I'm going to tell you why I see it future, and then we'll understand what, what Mark is saying about it. When Daniel gives the prophecy in Daniel 9, something happens in Israel's history. That's about, uh, uh, remember in 605 BC, Babylon comes in and ransacks Jerusalem. It's important for you to understand that whenever Israel was disobedient, God brought a nation to destroy them. That's what happened. And so Daniel is predicting that one of the ways Israel, that, that final week 
is a judgment upon Israel. But according to Revelation, it expands to a judgment on the whole world. It's not just for Israel. It's primarily Israel, but it comes upon the whole world. That's the tribulation period that will come upon the whole world in Revelation. Okay, so when Daniel gives the prophecy, sometime after that, in 168 B.C., now this is just history. Some people believe that Daniel's prophecy was fulfilled in 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes. This might help. Remember, Israel is in Babylonian captivity when Daniel writes. They got in trouble. God sent Babylon in to destroy Jerusalem. A lot of people got taken into captivity. Daniel was one of them. To Babylon. Okay? Then from from that moment on, they're in there for 70 years. That's where you get the 70 weeks from. You say, why did he decree 70 weeks for them? Because they're in captivity for 70 years. It's just pattern. Okay? So they leave there and they come back and they rebuild that temple. In 168 BC, after they've rebuilt it, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, and I'll just abbreviate his name, and destroys it again. That is part of the fulfillment of Daniel 9, is that temple gets destroyed again. Right here. So some people believe Daniel was fulfilled in 168 BC, second century. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is, as you and I are reading Mark, and Jesus refers back to an abomination of desolation that's in Daniel. He refers back to that, which means this can't be the one. It can't be this one. So Mark is about to describe an event. That's about to happen to Israel. Jesus is going to say, oh, guess what? Mark's probably writing in the middle of the 50s, 50 AD 50 or 60. Right here, before this event occurs. So if Mark is prophesying here, then he is looking to an event that's about to happen in Israel's his- history. Within a decade, it's about to happen here. So whatever, it's, a, it's just incredible that Jesus is referring to a prophecy that looks like it was partially fulfilled or maybe fulfilled in 168 BC as something that's going to happen again here, which tells you that when you're reading prophecy, when you're seeing these things, sometimes you get an event that looks like the fulfillment, but it isn't. It looks like the fulfillment, but it isn't. Well, AD 70 is on the way. You know what happens in AD 70? Remember? In AD 66, the Jews revolt against Rome. Nero's in charge. Nero decides he's going to handle this situation. He sends Vespasian to handle it. And while Vespasian is out dominating the Jews, Nero kills himself. So right before Vespasian can enter Jerusalem in about 68, he's got to go back and become the emperor because Nero's dead. So Vespasian sends his son, Titus, in A.D. 70 to destroy Jerusalem and ransack the city. And he goes in there and sets up a Roman. The Romans set up a standard in there. They worship. They desecrate the temple. Horrific time for Israel. That's Masada. I got to stand in Masada and see all where some of the Jews fled and ultimately killed themselves. 
because they didn't want the Romans to kill them. Okay, that's the story. It was an a horrific time. Well, here in Mark 13, when Jesus brings up the abomination of desolation, he recalls to your mind, Daniel. And now he's predicting that another abomination of desolation looking thing is going to happen. But we're already clued into the fact that this is probably not going to be the fulfillment either. Although some people believe, ah, it wasn't 168 where it got fulfilled. Now it's AD 70 where it got fulfilled. So if you're one of those people, then you read everything in Mark 13 as already happened. And you read Revelation as if it already happened. Unless you can argue that this is not the ultimate fulfillment. There's actually another one coming. If you argue that there's another one coming, you believe that there is a seven-year tribulation period. Still left for Israel. One week left. Because that one week hasn't been fulfilled. You've got to do something with that week. You're either going to put it here, you're going to put it here, or you're going to put it here. Does everybody follow that? So you decide whether you want a future tribulation or not when you study. Do you see one or do you not see one? Okay, so I see one based on what Mark 13 is 7. And here's the main reason why, and I'll make it really easy. Jesus didn't come back here, and he didn't come back here. And he's supposed to come back after this event. Hey, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 24. What happens after the abomination of desolation? I don't have it open to it, so somebody say it. Sun will be darkened, and guess who's coming? The Son of Man is going to appear in the clouds. So since he has not appeared in the clouds, I'm reading Mark 13 as, this hasn't happened yet, because after the event that he's describing will. But they look like that event. These look like this event. That helps us. What's that event going to look like in the future? Well, it looks a little bit like these. So that's how we get there. That's how you get a seven-year tribulation. Now, if you believe in a seven-year tribulation, you believe Jesus has just catapulted you, not only into the near future where AD 70 is going to happen, but also into the tribulation period to give us little windows of what's going to happen into the middle of that seven-week period. I've prayed my guts out that you can at least understand what I've said so far and that you're with me. That's all I can do. That's a really fast version of this. Now, you say, okay, Pete, does the New Testament say anything else about something going to happen here? Uh, I don't think I have it on there. Uh, but uh, if you haven't read Second Thessalonians, listen to this. Just so you don't think I'm crazy. Just listen to Second Thessalonians, what Paul says. Let no one deceive you. It's writing to a church. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not arrive, okay? The end time will not arrive until the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. And as a result, he takes his seat in God's temple, displaying himself as God. That's exactly what Daniel prophesies is going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. So, it's in 2 Thessalonians 2 if you want to read it. 
All right, now that I have probably thoroughly, that shouldn't be too confusing, really. So all I'm arguing is that if you want to look at uh, your chart, if you want to look at this chart that you have, real fast, then we're going to dive into the text, okay? Then we'll be done with the sort of the, the bigger picture. But I want you to see something here. And I, I really do not have time to walk you through it, but many of you have requested sort of a general layout of what it looks like, what the future looks like. So I wanted to give you this, and perhaps another time we'll walk through this whole thing. All right? Uh, and it won't be a Sunday morning. It's going to have to be a Sunday night where we have, you know, six, eight hours together. All right, so. So. I'm arguing that A.D. 70 happens just a little after Jesus predicts what he just said, the abomination of desolation. And I'm also arguing that that wasn't the final one, that there's going to come another one, and it must be in the tribulation period, right in the middle of it. So these two sort of mirror each other. This one's going to happen here within a decade. This one has not happened yet. All right, so what I'm saying is Jesus has just plopped us down right here in the middle of the tribulation period. After the disciples have asked him, when is all this going to happen? This becomes the critical event. By the way, whenever the tribulation is mentioned, outside of Revelation, really, because Revelation does some different kinds of stuff. Revelation, uh, whenever this event is discussed... The second coming in the, in the New Testament always appears right after it. Do you notice even in Mark 13, right after the abomination of desolation, what happens? He comes back. If we didn't have revelation, here, listen. If we didn't have revelation, we wouldn't know that that coming actually gets stretched out a little bit and there's three and a half years on the other side of that AD 70 abomination of desolation. We wouldn't know it. So revelation helps us a little bit and then fills in a lot of what's going to happen. After this, after the Antichrist here in the middle does this. Okay? So, I got two different Bibles, two different passages, because I'm reading from two different versions, and I'm, I'm lost. All right. So let's go back to our text real quick. The, when you see the abomination of desolation... In other words, hey, folks, you living here in about a decade, you're going to see something that looks just like what Daniel described. And it's coming right here to Jerusalem. Why would Jesus predict that about the temple he just walked out of? This is really important to understand the application for us today because this isn't till future. Someone's going to stand where he should not be, let the reader understand. That means it's probably a reference to go back to Daniel and figure out what Jesus is describing. Then those in Judea are going to run. Now it's time to run. Up to now, Jesus has told the Christians, endure. Suck it up. And now all of a sudden, he completely shifts and says, just get going. You say, what is the story? Why is that? So that's what's haunted me for a couple weeks. Trying to figure out what that is all about. So, because now what you have all of a sudden is this, this war, this war with the Romans that the Jews had, this war is about to create another set of refugees. 
eschatological refugees, end-time refugees, who are now hightailing it out of Jerusalem. And among them will be the disciples, will be his followers. And they're told to take off. I told you when I was in northern Iraq, you know, uh, we were in this little town. And it was a little Christian town. And it was just not very far from Mosul. In fact, I took uh, a picture of the sign as we were leaving. The city is behind us. We're driving down this road here. You see on the left, we're coming this way toward this truck. And there's a sign here. I stopped to get it because if you go left, you're going to Erbil. If you go straight, you look over Mosul. If you look straight from right here, this is what you see. This is the view. Okay, from back up here, because you can go uphill from that sign. When you look back over it, right here, you're looking right through here. Mosul is here. And I told you, everybody in the town, and I'll show you a picture of the town. So when you're coming in, that's what you see. This is the town. So from here, looking back, looking this direction from that mountain, this is what you see. You see the, the plains of Nineveh. And Mosul is here. And they've got binoculars. They all in this town have binoculars with them. And they're constantly looking into that plane to see if ISIS is is heading toward them. And if ISIS heads toward them, you know what they're doing? They're going right over this mountain. Because that's the only way out. They got to go right out. They got to go right over that mountain. Which I was there and I looked at that mountain. That's not like... Hey, let's get a backpack today and and have a little hike. Oh, no. Not many of them are going to get past that. And so they're all going to run. So it just gave me the feeling of what this would be like. So in Mark 13, here's what Jesus says. Why are we running? Keep that in mind. That's the question to ask. Let's figure it out. The one on the rooftop must not come down or go inside to take anything out of his house. It's, a, it's just a third person imperative. That means this is just a, hey, dude, get out of here. It's urgency. I'm not even speaking to anyone particular. I'm just saying everybody, go. If you're on the roof of your house, which they spent a lot of time up there, and you could come down from that roof without ever going into the house. Because the stairs were up there. But if you couldn't come down the stairs, go in your house to get something, you don't have time. Don't go, don't come down and go inside to take anything out of the house. You don't have time. The one in the field must not turn back. So if, if you're sitting on your house and you're just sort of hanging out in the cool up there on the roof. And you, you see this happening. Take off. Don't even take anything with you. The one in the field, if you're in the field and you're working, don't you dare turn back and get something. Like if it's cold outside, yeah, I better take my jacket with me. No, leave it. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing their babies in those days. Okay, this is an important phrase. Talk about it later. Nursing their babies. Because, of course, some people are going to be, it's going to be a harder trek for some than others. Pray. That it may not be winter. By the way, I always do. I hate winter. All right, I hate the cold. I'm always praying for it to be warm. Anybody else like that? I don't like cold. I don't like it. By the way, this is the very last day I'll have pants on until about October. This is the last day. Just want everybody to know. 
There's a good verse for that right here. Why I wear shorts through the summer. Pray that it's not winter. So here comes this sort of just bombardment of get out of town. A couple of things about that. First of all, just utter urgency. Uh, You see the vulnerability of some people. You see people praying. Uh, The reason that that winter is an issue is because the rivers would be overflowed at that time. And it would be really hard to cross them. Uh, Very difficult. Uh, So this is, we're talking about AD 70 still. Because remember, that's the event that's going to happen in 10, you know, within a decade. And, uh, And I want you to understand a couple of things that are here. When you have to run for the hills, which is what they have to do. When you run for the hills and you see this turn back, when you think don't turn back, what story in the Bible do you think of? You think of Lot. And that's exactly what Mark wants you to think about. All right? Now, I don't have time to do this, but you can. If you go to Luke chapter 17, verses 28 to 33, this section right here, so watch this. This whole section right here is definitely applied to the A.D. 70 in Jerusalem. It's definitely being applied to that. But if you go to Luke 17, when Jesus is talking about the second coming, and he says, it will be just like the days of Lot. In fact, I don't know if I've got it here. Yeah, look. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. There it is again. This time, though, it's in the... It's in, the sub, it's in the topic of the second coming, not A.D. 70. So that's why I'm arguing for a future one too. There's two. One that happens soon, one that happens far. Here's the same thing, but now it's talking about the Son of Man coming. So watch. Remember, look who he brings up. Lot's wife, right here. Whoever seeks to keep his life, here's the key verse, right here. I'll come back to it. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Here's what's the important thing, because I'm running out of time, and I'm going to have to shorten up uh, this anyway. So let me just do this. Why run when he's told us to stand firm all this time? Hey, listen, sometimes in your discipleship to Christ, you are called to stand there and take it. Sometimes in your discipleship to Christ, you are called to run. You say, why is he telling these people to run? Here's why this would be incredibly surprising advice, especially to a Jew who's primarily hearing this. It's because whenever they were told a war was coming, you didn't run from the city. You ran to the city. It had walls to protect you. You ran to the city. Well, in this particular case, Jesus has told them since chapter 11, God is not here anymore. You're not running from anything godly. You're running to God. You're running to Christ when you flee Jerusalem. If you stay, you're demonstrating your loyalty to an outdated, evil system. You run because you're running to me. You don't run. You don't stand there in Jerusalem and fight for that thing. Because I have left that thing and made it desolate. It's the abomination that makes desolate. You know what desolate means? It means God forsaken. God's not there anymore. 
See, everyone was enamored with the temple. Everyone was enamored with its rituals. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something. God isn't there anymore. I'll tell you where he is. He's out in the hills. You don't go to the temple to find God anymore. You come to Christ to find him. So you run from that the way you would run from religion to save you. And you don't take anything with you. You need nothing from it. You need nothing but me. That's what this whole, that's what all that language is. And so right here comes, there comes a time when you will have to lose your life. What am I losing in this context? Because what's going to happen is when the abomination of desolation occurs, you're going to, dis- you're going to discover your loyalties. Just like Lot's wife. She's going to take off running. She's going to realize everything that mattered to her is about to be destroyed. And she's going to look back as if to say, that's where my heart is. And so when this time comes, the question on the table will be, where's your heart? And the ones who have Christ as the focus of their heart, they will take off from that place because that's not who they trust. They don't trust the temple in the old ways anymore. They trust God. They're running out to Christ when they take off. As you'll see here just real quickly in just a second. In fact, listen to this. Because I thought this was really interesting. One of the Roman historian wrote of what happened in A.D. 70 when Titus actually got through the city and came into the sanctuary and began to destroy it and burned it and all this stuff. Here's what he writes about it. He writes about the Jews' deluded allegiance to the temple. Jesus has told everyone, take off because it's temple. But if you held on to that temple, if you thought that was the most important thing, you'd stand right there and die with it. And he describes it. The Jews resisted Titus with more ardor than ever, as if it were a kind of windfall, an unexpected piece of luck to fall fighting against a foe far outnumbering them. They were not overcome until a part of the temple had caught fire. Then some impaled themselves voluntarily on the swords of the Romans. Others slew each other. Others did away with themselves or leap into the flames. They all believed, especially the last, that it was not a disaster but a victory, salvation, and happiness to perish together with the temple. They were so... Remember when Jesus predicts that the temple's going to go down? One of the disciples goes, look how beautiful that building is. Man, I just can't get it out of my heart and my mind. And Jesus says, you better. You better. Because it's an old way. It will not get you to me anymore. It's going down. And when it goes down, if you want to go down with it, you go down. And that means if you, that means you're going to move into the future yourself. Here's where the application is to us as followers of Christ today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you're holding on to something else to save you. And you're going to go down with that ship no matter what because you believe you're good enough. And you don't believe you need to trust Jesus Christ to save you. You're going down with that ship. And so what is going to happen to all of us? And we all had to do this. We all had to let go of something we thought was really important to us that might even save us. It might even give us a good resume before God. We had to let it go and run to Christ with nothing in our hands, not a jacket, not a good deed, not anything. We had to run to Christ for it. That's that's the way it'll be in the end. In the end, your real loyalties will come out. And you'll take off running to the thing that you trust the most. And Jesus is saying there will come a time when you have to run to me away from everything you thought was valuable. Even if it was spiritual. Like they thought the temple was spiritual. Jesus is going down. 
And so is all of our good works if we're using them to think that, we, that God owes us something. No, you take off running. You flee. By the way, if you read Revelation 18, the, the Babylon, the city of Babylon is this evil city, this evil woman she's depicted as. And then there's going to come a time when God's going to destroy that city. And everyone who's, who's profited from that city, got all their pleasure from that city, they're all going to have to do something. They're either going to go down with the ship. And you read Revelation 18, they either go down with the ship. Or, as Jesus says in Revelation 18, 4, uh, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive the plague, receive any of her plagues. See, there will come a time in the future when we have to take off because we are not a part of them anymore. So here's what happens. Sometimes your discipleship means you stay and you associate and you endure hardship. Sometimes it means run. That could be applied to all of our lives right now. There's something you ought to take off running from. I mean, take off running, leave, take nothing with you. Sometimes you got to just stay and endure. But discipleship is both. I'll wrap this up quick. Here's what he says. In those days, there will be suffering unlike anything that has happened. Here we have the shift to the future. Here's that phrase, in those days. It's used four times in Mark, and it usually refers to something beyond A.D. 70. In those days, there will be suffering unlike anything that has happened from the beginning of the creation that God created until now or will ever happen. This has got to be the last one, and it probably isn't A.D. 70. This is the reason why I don't take A.D. 70 to be the the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. I think there's something else coming in the future because what's described here has not happened yet. Do you understand? That's the reason. So, if anyone says to you at this time, while you're running, in this sort of crisis moment, do I run, do I stay? If somebody says to you, hey, look, there's the Christ. Hey, look, there he is. Don't believe him. This is not time to get suckered. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. By the way, I'm going to give you two passages of Scripture to go read. One of them is Revelation 13, because that's talking about the future tribulation where the false prophet tries to deceive, and he does it with signs and wonders right here. So Revelation 13 is talking about the guy who does the abomination of desolation in the future. Revelation 13 is describing him. They describe him as the beast. Then the false prophet's job is to get everyone to to believe what the Antichrist says. That's Revelation 13. And he will deceive anyone, even the elect, even God's chosen ones, even the ones who are clearly should be running out to the hills to Jesus. Some of them could even be deceived. So what does he say? Be careful. I have told you everything ahead of time. There's there's a whole sermon here. But at the end of the day, you got to be solid on what you believe. Don't go looking for a Christ at that moment because verse 24 is going to tell you how he's going to come and nobody needs to tell you he's here. If anyone tells you he's here, He isn't here. 
How about, how about that? that? That makes it really easy. Because if you didn't see him come, he ain't come. Because verse 24 said, well, I didn't see them. All you have to do is say, well, I didn't see the sun stop shining when it should have been shining. Because it's not going to be difficult to see. All right. Now, you can also read of the horror of all of this in Revelation 6 through 18, because it describes the whole tribulation period, chapter 6 through 18. So, last thing to say is this phrase right here. This is the last thing I want to say. He says, he will deceive. He's so good. Oh, by the way, the other passage I was going to give you to read is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. It'll talk about the deception that's going to come. Because, by the way, they're going to use these grim, uh, chaotic moments. They're going to exploit those and try to get anyone to believe it. All right, so... Uh, If possible, the elect. Here's what I want to tell you. The reason Mark adds that in there is because it's not possible to deceive the elect. I've told you that. That's what gritty faith is. Gritty faith never stops believing. It never gets deceived. It never ultimately abandons Christ. And so God is saying, so what I'm trying to show you here is there's little hints throughout this text that when you take off running, you take off running to Christ. You take off running to him. Why? Because in verse 20, he says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, there's that those days again, no one would be saved. No one would make it. But because of the elect, by the way, you take off running and flee because you trust him. He's the only hope you have is out in those hills where he is. There's no hope for anyone unless he is there in this moment. But because of the elect, because of us, because of the chosen ones, because of those who follow Christ and Israel in the context, whom he chose, he has cut them short. I mean, if God doesn't cut that period short, no one will survive it. So it is in his grace that he cuts that short for the sake of his people. Now that means, probably means that what sounds like it's going to be a seven-year tribulation might actually be a little shorter than that because God's not going to let it go all the way to the end because because of us. So, if possible, they'll try to deceive you, but it's not going to happen because you have real faith. The only other time, and I'll just come down here because I really want to show you that I'm done. <laughs> but I just think you'll like this. The only other time the words, if possible, are used in Mark. In chapter 14, verse 35, when Jesus is praying, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, anyone who's reading this text as a whole would hear that if possible and this if if possible. And they would connect those two and say something. Why is it impossible that the elect will be deceived? It's only because Jesus didn't pass up the cup. Remember what Revelation says? You will overcome by the blood of the Lamb. His sacrifice and what he has done for you, your absolute dependence on that will will make sure that you aren't deceived in this moment. In other words, the reason you won't acquiesce to deceivers 
is because Jesus didn't acquiesce from the cross. That's the reason. The only reason you get saved is because Jesus didn't save himself. So even though this horrific time is happening, trust in Jesus Christ is still the answer, the very, still the very simple answer. All right. You go home and eat barbecue now. Yeah. Father, we love your word. We just thank you for it. I just pray, God, whatever I muddied, that your spirit would make clear. In Jesus' name. Amen.